Thanks for listening to the 242 Young Adults Podcast with Pastor Justin Corkum. Our prayer is that this message will be an encouragement to your life in Christ. So if you can, turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Book of Philippians, chapter 3. We are still in our series on Philippians, and... uh, you know, we, we started off with a series called To Live as Christ, and that was just really the first two chapters, and so we're, we're going to move on uh, now to chapter three, and we're starting our little mini-series within a series uh, called Victory and Joy. Victory and Joy. And tonight, really, my message is entitled, What Lies Ahead? Paul begins chapter three. If you, if you just read uh, the first verse, it says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, we've talked about Paul, where he's at right now. He's in prison, uh, and he's writing this letter to the Philippian church. And what's cool, uh, obviously not being in prison, but every, everyone around him knew why he was there. Uh, He was pretty vocal about his faith. I mean, he was the Apostle Paul, so obviously he's going to talk about Jesus uh, quite a bit. And so everybody knew why this guy was here. They knew why he was in prison. And I think that it's really interesting. Uh, They all knew that death was a possibility as well, that this guy could literally die for the message uh, of Jesus. And the Roman view uh, of life and death was, was pretty abysmal. I mean, life was basically just, life was lived for death. That was how they kind of viewed it. Um, all of the circumstances and suffering that you faced uh, were just a prelude to your ultimate fate, death. Uh, and so we have this very doom and gloom view uh, of what it means to live even. And here... Paul is in prison, and these Roman officers and, and the people are seeing a person exemplify joy in a way that they can't even understand, that death is on, on the, the, the edge here. It's on the precipice, and he's walking around with joy, spreading the gospel, talking about the message of Jesus, still pursuing his, his mission as an apostle. And people are looking at him going like, what the world is going on with this guy? I'm depressed with my life just as it is. This guy's in prison and he's more joyful than I am. He was writing to the Philippian church because I think there were certain people in the church that felt that his imprisonment was going to impede the spreading of the gospel. It was going to keep him from doing what he was supposed to do. And this was something that could really bother the church really discouraged the church. And Paul's writing them saying like, no, like this is not impeding the gospel. If anything, my imprisonment is accelerating the spreading of the gospel because more and more people are beginning to know why I'm here. I could even imagine him where he was in that prison cell, seeing even opportunities around him, speaking into even maybe the Roman guards and the people that were placed to watch him, speaking into their lives, investing into people, always being on mission. So Paul, this Paul encourages the church 
to rejoice in the Lord whatever happens. Paul uses that phrase rejoice ten times in this short book. In these four chapters, ten times he exhorts the church to rejoice in the Lord. And it really raises the question for us, like, is that even possible? I mean, is it really possible, like, to rejoice in the Lord, like, whatever happens? Uh, because that's easier said than done. That's, that's easier said than done. Uh, and so what I want to do tonight is just take some time, really, before we get into what matters most and really lay a foundation and understanding Paul was in a situation... Who in here would consider prison a good situation? I mean, especially at that time, what that meant. Uh, Probably none of us. None of us would say, yeah, that sounds awesome. Prison, amazing. Uh, But he's in this rough situation and still exemplifying joy. And I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to understand what joy is before we, you know, we move forward into focusing tonight on what lies ahead. Um, For us, we need to understand that joy is is not simply an emotion. Joy is not simply an emotion. Joy is really a fact. It's a fact of of truth. Uh, Joy in the Lord is not an emotional response to circumstance. It's a truth that remains unaffected by circumstance. Joy in the Lord, and the only, you know, one of the things, the only thing that I could think of to really explain this is something that my dad always used to tell me. You know, my dad, he was one of those like one-liner guys. Like, if, and if any of you have met him, you've probably gotten one. Uh, as, you're, as you're, like, leaving, you, he, he'll shake your hand and he'll give you, like, his, like, a one-liner. Sometimes he just makes it up on the spot and it, like, poof, crashes and burns. And, and other times, not so much. But one of his, like, taglines, he would even tell me this. And it's like it was, it was like his pastor tagline, like, in all his emails. He'd be like, living here to make a difference there. And so I'd be like getting ready to go to college or something like community college and I'd be walking out the door and he'd be like, son, remember. And that's when you knew it was coming. We're living here to make a difference there. And I'm like, thanks, dad. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Another one was always give him Jesus. Uh, That was another one. Walking out the door, give him Jesus. And uh, the third one that he used a lot was be a thermostat, not a thermometer. What? Be it. What? Why? What do you, what do you mean? And, uh, and I think that one actually paints the perfect picture uh, of really joy. Joy, it's not a thermometer, it's a thermostat. Think about a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? It just responds to the temperature around it. It just tells you what's going on. So if it's hot, I'm screaming hot. If it's cold, I'm screaming cold. A thermostat sets the temperature. And I love that. It's such a good example. An emotional display of happiness, I would consider thermometer. Because happiness is a moment. Because just after that moment of happiness, sadness could be coming right after. How many seen Inside Out? Joy, and then poof, sadness. I love that movie. But seriously, you could be happy one second and literally one second later not be happy. This is something, an emotion that's dictated by circumstance, but joy sets 
the tone. It sets the temperature. Joy stays the same even when the emotions can fluctuate. Joy is consistent. And so this is what we strive for. How? How is joy consistent? Well, look at what he's explaining. Joy, rejoice in the Lord. You want to have consistent joy, make sure your joy is in the Lord because I'll tell you who doesn't change. It's the Lord. He's immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and he'll be the same from before the beginning until after the end, if that even makes any sense. He will stay the same. And when our joy is in the Lord, our joy will be a thermostat and not a thermometer. Thanks, Dad. So tonight, my message is entitled, What Lies Ahead? And so, I believe the source of of Paul's joy was the Lord. And I believe that that is the key in discovering what lies ahead for us. What lies ahead for our own individual lives. And so just to give you some brief context here, he, he begins explaining how joy safeguards our faith. Uh, he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice, there it is again, in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The NLT translates that rejoice in Christ Jesus as we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. So joy in the Lord leads to confidence in him not in our flesh, right? So if, if we have true joy in Jesus Christ, that simply leads us to just confidence in Him, not in ourselves. And the second thing, rejoicing in the Lord, and I love this, rejoicing in the Lord is reliance on what He did at the cross. I almost, and I love how it translates because the, uh, the New King James Version rather says rejoice in Christ Jesus and the NLT translates that as we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. How cool is that? That the phrase rejoice in Christ Jesus means rely on what Christ Jesus has done. Let me tell you, your source of joy is what Jesus has done. His crucifixion, his death on the cross, his beating the heck out of sin and then taking its name, destroying its name, coming up, pounding Satan in the face, then resurrecting from the grave and sitting at the right hand of God like he's victorious. We have relationship with God again. That's, that's what we rejoice in, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Rely on what Jesus Christ did at the cross. That's our joy. That's where that consistent, constant joy comes from. It comes from the cross. It comes from what Christ has done for us. And Paul's combating this idea of works-based salvation. He's, combat- he's combating this idea that um, you know, there's these, this sect of, uh, of people that were f- trying to force these Gentiles to adopt Jewish law. So he mentions even, uh, he mentions circumcision, right? That was something that was being mandated to the point where they would say you're not truly saved unless you're, you're circumcised. And so they were forcing 
parts of the law of Moses onto these believers. And I'm sure a lot of them fell for it. A lot of them probably thought, man, I'm not saved. I, I, I need to adhere completely to the law of Moses in order to be, you know, good with God. And Paul's really saying that just puts, all, that puts confidence in your flesh as if like you could work your way to being safe. And he uses himself as, a, as an example. And really, this is just, I'm painting context here for, for where we're going. Uh, and so Paul says like, look, if anybody had right to be confident in the flesh, it's me. I, I have complete right to be confident in the flesh, right? Because right before he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee who demanded strict obedience to the law. And as for righteous, I obeyed the law without fault. Like he's going off on his resume being like, yeah, check that, got this, got that, got that. If anybody has a right to say, my works could get me there, it'd be me. But then what does he follow? He follows by saying, all his works are worthless when compared to the value of knowing Christ. He gave up everything regarding it all, and I'm quoting him right now, as garbage to gain Christ and become one with him. No longer counted on his works, but by faith in what Jesus did. So he's saying it's not anything that you can do on your own power. You can't just work your way to being saved. It's by faith that you're saved. No reliance on yourself. No reliance on what you can do. You rely on what He's done at the cross. That reliance is our source of joy. So I'm going to pick up at verse 10. And I want to read through this. And we're going to just sit here uh, tonight from verses 10 to 14. It says, I want to know Christ... And experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I think for all of us, there is a desire to know what lies ahead. I mean, how many want to know in your life what lies ahead? It's a question. What, what career, maybe for some of you that aren't in your career yet, what career lies ahead for me? Maybe for some of those who are looking to be married, what, what kind of spouse am I going to have? It's a question that we toss around in our minds all the time, whether it's finances, friendships, schooling, you know, am I going to pursue more degrees? Uh, am I going to keep going? We have this question, what lies? What lies ahead? And I think it's, it's a good question to ask. I, I mean, it really brings some perspective, I guess, for you, because then now you've got to sit down and ask yourself some questions, like, 
well, well, what direction should I take? I, where, where should I go? What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? And now, now this one question of what lies ahead leads to various other questions. Uh, and it can be sort of overwhelming at times. And I love that when Paul looks ahead, he's looking forward to the future. And he's in prison. Possibly could die. But, he, but he's looking forward to the future. To me, that statement in itself is, is a huge statement of Paul's faith. Remember like, like a couple in our connect groups a couple weeks ago where we talked about, you know, I know I'm in prison right now, but for your sakes, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I'm torn. I, I want to die and go be with Christ, but, but for your sake, it's probably better if I stay alive. So because it's better for me to stay alive, God's probably going to get me out of here for your sake because I'm so good to you because I'm the Apostle Paul. But like seriously, this guy knew like God was using him and because of his faith in who God was and that, in that work that God was doing in him, he believed that he was going to get out of, out of prison. Paul had faith here. I look forward to what lies ahead because I don't believe that it's death. I believe that it's life. I believe that it's the work being accomplished for the glory of God. So this is a great statement of faith. Paul was looking forward also to the reward for his life. And that's, I think, a really important part here is that when he says, I look forward to what lies ahead, he's really not talking about his life of what lies ahead. But he's, he, but he's speaking to really what happens after that. I can look forward to what, what's going to happen in my life because of the work that's going to be done for the kingdom. And I'm looking forward at the goal, the end goal, right? That's what he's looking for, like his, his relationship with Christ solidified where he stands before the presence of God. So he had the end in, in sight. And so really I want to speak to tonight about uh, five ways to succeed in what lies ahead. Not just our lives, what lies ahead, but I mean, how do we succeed in what lies after that? Because I believe Paul was looking at his life physically saying, I, I'm totally pumped about what's going to happen in my life. But at the same time saying, I'm totally pumped for what's going to happen after when I go to be with Christ. So how do we successfully walk out in what lies ahead for our own lives and after? When we're, when we're finishing that race, right, and we're standing before God. And so I want to talk about five things as briefly as possible. All of you just like took a big gulp. You're like, man, he usually preaches a three-point. We got a five-point tonight? Oh gosh, Lord, come quickly. The first part or point would be that we must have a longing to know Christ. We must have a longing to know Christ. Verse 10, Paul starts it off and just says, I want to know him. I want to know him. Knowing him is the foundation. Knowing Christ is the foundation. And I'm going to use throughout this evening just the analogy of a house. If your life was a house, and right now we're all in construction, right? We're all in the process of being made as a house. What kind of house are you, Tiffany? A bungalow. She's a bungalow. 
What kind of house are you, Lisa? A Gambrel. I didn't even know what kind of house that is. That's the kind of house you have? What about you, Shane? You're a sugar shack. I love it. I love it. Dave, what kind of house are you? A mansion. Guys, thinking big. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's sweet. Sugar shacks, sugar shacks are sweet. Josh, what about you? What kind of house? A boathouse. I like it. Guys on the water. I don't know what kind of house I would be. I just made up that question right now, but I really liked it. <laughs> Probably not a ranch, because then there's so much construction you need to do on the inside to make it an open concept, so uh, probably staying away from a ranch, but I really don't know. I don't know. But we're going to be sticking here, and I'm sure HGTV is going to come up, because it's just, I have it in my notes. So, But I want to start with the idea of a foundation, right? If if knowing Christ is the foundation, knowing Him is what creates stability, right? A foundation is what gives a house stability. That when uh, a storm comes, we've had some crazy wind in the area the past couple weeks. When the wind comes and, and blows against the house because of its foundation, that house is not shaken. That house is not moved. Christ is the foundation. Knowing Him is what solidifies the foundation in our lives. So how many here know who Tom Brady is? Know who Tom Brady is? How many, how many know how many rings, Super Bowl rings that he's won? Four. I, uh, I was... I sent a friend of mine uh, who's worship pastor in Maryland. I sent him a, a Snapchat today. My son was pretty cute, taking a nap. We were just chilling. I was wearing a Denver Broncos t-shirt, as I still am, underneath this wonderful uh, sweatshirt. And he, <laughs> he replies like, why are you wearing that garbage shirt? And so uh, I, just, I just replied back. I'm like, we're the champions. You're just jealous. And he's a Patriots fan, so he just... He just sends me a picture of him holding up four fingers. And he just says, four rings. And so, we all know how many rings. How many know Tom Brady's story? How he, how he was, like, picked. So you got, okay, not as many. Okay, a couple people. Still, still quite a few. All right. I, I, I could know who Tom Brady is. That he's the quarterback for the Patriots. Best quarterback? The best quarterback, sorry, that's corrected, uh, which is not true. <laughs> and I could know that he's won four Super Bowls, and he's been to plenty of AFC championships, what, 10? That's crazy. I know, I, I know that he was drafted super low, and the only reason he started was because Drew Bledsoe got injured. But do I know, do I know him? I almost said Peyton Manning. <laughs> do I know do I know Tom Brady? Do I truly know him? Do I know what he enjoys? Do I know what his hobbies are besides football? But do I know his family and, and how he loves his family, how he spends time? I don't know Tom Brady. And sometimes I feel like we can, we can turn our relationship with God uh, into knowing him, but it looks a little bit more like spouting out facts that we've heard. Uh, from other people or from the Bible or, 
or you know, from our pastor or for, from, from a friend. We, we know that Jesus, you know, he, he was God and he came and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave and we kind of just go through the motions of speaking such powerful truths, but do we know him? I mean, do we truly know Knowing someone speaks to, to intimacy, to, to understanding. Do we know him? The problem today is that there's, it's so easy to access information. It's so easy to feel like you really know something uh, when you don't. I mean, you could ask me what's 1,762 divided by 6.3. And I would reply to you, Siri, what's 1,762 divided by 6.3? And I would say to you, 279.6825. See how quick, like, see how quick, I could just, I could grab that information super quick. I don't know anything, I don't know math and numbers that way at all. But, I can still access that information pretty quick. I'm relying on maybe a fact spoken to me by Siri. Just like maybe some of us rely on, on our knowledge of God from facts that other people tell us. But is that truly knowing God? It's easy to talk about Jesus' life. It's easy to talk about Bible doctrine. It's even easy to be used by God and think that that's proof that there's a relationship there. And, and that's really what Matthew 7 speaks to from verse 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Uh, will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Only those who do his will make it to the kingdom. What does that mean? I mean, clearly, it's not just being used by God, prophesying, exercising demons or, or miracles. I never knew you. God's will is that we would know Him. God's will is that we would know Him. That at the day we stand before him, he wouldn't say, I'm sorry. I know what you've done. But I'm more about just knowing you. Not what you've done. Not what you know about me. But just knowing me. Knowing Christ brings stability to our lives. The second thing, ways to succeed in what lies ahead. We must have a longing to experience his power. 
Paul says, I want to know him and I want to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Going back to our house that's being built, right? Our individual houses, our bungalows and boat houses and things like that. Experiencing his power is like receiving the capability of building. Experiencing his power is receiving the capability of building. A house cannot enter into the process of development until that foundation is laid, right? How many have been keeping track of the new Walmart, the Supercenter that's going up in Manchester? I, rem- I, I live near there, so I pass it all the time. And I'm like, I remember it was like foundation time. And they were just putting in that foundation. And, uh, and you, you know, you couldn't really tell what was going on at the time. You knew something was happening because there was a bunch of machinery around and, and there, was, you know, there was stuff there, but you really couldn't tell what was happening. And it wasn't until like the giant wall started going up that you're like, whoa, snap, things are rolling. Uh, now it's pretty much finished. And you can't enter into that development process until that foundation is laid. Knowing Christ, that's where it starts. Experiencing His power just enables us to really begin to build, to build ourselves, to to build, you know, if we're the house, right? If we're the house and our life is the process of the house being built and the day we die and stand before Christ is the completion of that house, then experiencing his power, whether it be through salvation, whether it be through the Holy Spirit uh, empowering us, experiencing his power is just what happens as we develop as we build, as, we, as the framework gets put in, you know, as, as we start putting the HVAC in and all the other electrical, and it, it, that's our life, right? It's you getting the picture that I'm painting here. Know that God desires for us to experience His power, right? Because Matthew 7, you would think, well, God, God wants just to know me. You know, just because he said, well, you know, you prophesied, you did all of these things, but I didn't know you. That doesn't disqualify those things. God desires to do great things through you. God desires for you to experience his power so that you're enabled to really build his kingdom. Anybody watch uh, Property Brothers, Fixer Upper? These guys, uh, you know, Chip, Chip, uh, Chip Gaines and... Um, Jonathan Scott, right? Those are the two shows that I, I enjoy, me and my wife watch together. And uh, they're kind of the, they're the guys who build stuff. They're the guys that build the houses, basically. And, uh, and they're the ones, they have the imagination, that vision to see, you know, the project from beginning to end. They go into these crazy rundown houses sometimes, and they just turn them into something beautiful. Um, and it really is, uh, and honestly, I don't know, it's probably a bad analogy that I'm using tonight, but I, I feel it, it does. It, it reflects in a bit uh, of just what Christ does with us and how he finds us and we're a mess. Uh, you know, we got rat poop everywhere, and you got the cat pee smell, and all the, You ever see those shows? Come on, you got to see them when they walk into these, like, run-down places. There's, like, cats. I remember one, one show, they walk in, there's some dude just laying on a bed, 
And they're like, oh my gosh, they shut the door. They're like, I had no idea somebody was in here. They're showing them the house, filming the show, and somebody's just like sleeping on an air mattress in one of the rooms. Like some crazy like stuff. And how many know, like our lives are crazy sometimes. Like stuff is going on. There is cat pee on the floor in our lives. There, there's poop in the corner. And, and then God comes in and does like some crazy stuff and cleans us up. And he begins to work on us and begins to turn us into something beautiful. And that's what these guys do. They, they, go, they go in and they really begin to cast a vision for a house. And they have the right tools to do it. And, and that's what I'm, experiencing his power is what enables us to build. From, from the moment that we come to know him, that foundation is laid, and, and to the moment that we die when, when we're finished, when, our, when our, our house is done. And I don't want to be a, a house that's like, foreclosed or condemned and never gets finished you know i want to finish the work that god started in me we'll talk about that in a moment but knowing god's what brings stability or rather in our lives and experiencing his power is what enables us to build his kingdom the the third thing is we must have a longing to suffer with him paul continues on to say that i want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. When you look at suffering, really I view suffering in our lives as, as the opposition. Right? Going back to these shows, if you've watched anything on that channel, the, as they're building and everything's going great and, and oh, we just, we just put this in and that in, all of a sudden like cue the music We've got a problem. And, and, and now, oh my gosh, something just went wrong. There's an issue with this. You know, we've got to reroute the HVAC. We've got we to gotta fix the foundation issue. We've got to move some electrical stuff or asbestos. You know, like just crazy stuff happens while they're in the middle of these construction projects. But I've never seen one of them go, no. We can't fix this. We're finished. Like none of them just go, oh man, everybody wrap it up. We're done. Like they hit opposition and what do they do? They press on. They fix the problem. They have the resources to be able to fix any opposition that comes their way. I think for us, Suffering is such a, you know, especially the type of suffering Paul's speaking about here. He's talking about physical persecution. He's being persecuted. Now, you've got to remember, Paul was a persecutor. Like, Paul dished this out on the church. Uh, and now he's, he's tasting some of that medicine coming back at him. You know, he's, he's tasting what it feels like now to be persecuted for his faith in Jesus. Just like he was the one persecuting for other people's faith in, in Jesus. So you have this... This moment now where he's realizing, I'm going to suffer with Christ. I'm going to do this because I know the work that Christ has done in me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer for him so that I can share in the resurrection. Share in his suffering to share in his resurrection. I think it's a tough concept, like I was saying, just for us to grasp. I don't think we understand that type of, of persecution. We really don't uh, because we don't have it. 
Uh, the worst that we get is, you know, maybe a good reaming to uh, about how we're, you know, stupid or, or, you know, we haven't really thought things through or, you know, we've been deceived and drank the Kool-Aid, that kind of stuff. You know, that, like, that's not bad. I'll take that all day. You know, that's, that's different than somebody beating the mess out of me because I believe in Jesus. That's different than me being imprisoned because I believe in Jesus. We don't, we don't understand the, the depth of persecution in the way that Paul was experiencing at this time. I mean, we're talking about a guy who got, like, stoned to the point of death because of Jesus. But he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of opposition. And for him, the opposition that he was facing was simply just one step closer. One step closer to him accomplishing what God was working in his life. When we have true joy, right, the, tr- the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, sharing in Christ's suffering leads to a beautiful thing, sharing in his resurrection. Knowing God is what brings stability in our lives. Experiencing His power is what enables us to build His kingdom. And suffering with Him leads to sharing in His glory. Romans 8.17, it says, Since we are children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. You truly don't know what you believe until you're willing to suffer for it. And I've never been persecuted in that sense. Uh, Most of you probably haven't been persecuted in that sense. I'd like to believe if I was in that situation, I would would endure. Um, You know, that's, I think that's where all of us are, but I mean, you, you just, you can't, you can't know. And that's, I guess for me, it's something that you need to know him in order to be able to suffer with him. You need to experience his power in your life to be able to suffer with him. And I don't know, this is, not a me- this is not a point that people preach a lot in America, but I don't know if any of us will ever face that kind of persecution at some point in our life. To get to that point where it literally is between a physical beating for our faith or just simply saying, you know, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really believe that and being let go. Being imprisoned for belief in Christ. I don't know, I, I really don't know what our future holds in that sense. There might be a day when we have to rise up and and to stand for our faith like that. If we do not know Him, if we do not experience His power, then we are not going to be able to endure that. To to share in His suffering. Fourth thing, and and before, and I don't want to end that on a bad note, I don't want to end that negatively. If we share in his suffering, we share in his glory. And that that suffering, even though it's a daunting thing, when we think about it, Paul was able to identify 
because he experienced God, because he knew him, because he saw God working in his life on a daily basis, that that suffering led to sharing in the resurrection of Christ and what that means, relationship with Christ, union with Christ, that after death that he would be in the presence of God. The fourth thing we've got to do is we must have his purpose. Have his purpose. Paul continues on and says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Let me tell you, in in the process of, of this house that we're talking about, purpose is our blueprint. Purpose, it's that moment when they sit the person down and they show them the 3D rendition of what their house could be and, and the things that are, are going to be changed. They get a, a, a view of, of, of who they can be. Now let me tell you, there, are, there might be even some in this room, you've encountered God in some way, but you don't truly have a vision for who God desires you to be. And let me tell you, can you seek him for that? Can you seek him for that vision? Because I know that scripture says, seek and you shall find. And I believe that if you seek something that clearly is within the will of God, obviously it's his will for who he wants you to be, that if you seek that, he's going to reveal that to you. It might not be your plans, but that's the point. The point is to find his plan. Seek after that plan that God has for you, that purpose that God has for you. And I love, love what Paul says here. He says, I haven't already achieved all these things or reached perfection. Right? All these things. He's talking about what we stated previously. Knowing Christ, experiencing His power, suffering with Him. And although Paul's doing all of that stuff. He's already, he's already gotten to know Christ. He's, he's experiencing his power daily almost, it seems. And As you read the book of Acts, there's so many uh, different things that Paul was used for, to do, for God. He's suffering with him currently, but he says, I haven't, I haven't already accomplished all these things. I haven't reached perfection in that word perfection in the Greek, uh, teleao, is really defined as to make perfect, complete, bring to an end, uh, goal proposed, or to accomplish. really gives the connotation of like finishing the task at hand. And, and regardless of the fact that Paul, in, as mature as he was, in the faith, as, as at all of the things that he had already been through, regardless of all of that, He was humble enough to say, I haven't achieved it all yet. But I think that the Greek word really paints the picture here. I'm not finished yet. Because that's what that word really, it's completion. It's talking about completion. Perfection gives the connotation of completion, this word. And so he's saying, you know, he's not saying, I'm not perfect. He's saying, I'm not finished I'm not finished. Yes, I know God. I've come into this awesome relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Yes, I experience his power daily. Yes, I suffer with him. But let me tell you, I am not finished. I am not finished. My work is still not done. And it's such a, a humble road that he takes. Because if anybody could, I don't know, if anybody could actually say, I got pretty close to arriving, I think it would probably be Paul. Some of, the, some of the apostles, you know. But he didn't. He said, I, I'm not finished yet. And I think for us, it's, it's an important lesson we've got to remember. There's always another step to take in our life. No matter who you are, God's got a greater person for you to be. No matter what you've done, God's got a greater work for you to do. That we are never finished with the gospel we are never finished till our house is complete till we reach that that last day where we stand before christ jesus we're not finished there's a work to be done and i love how paul is just so passionate i press on to possess that perfection you know it's powerful language there i press on to possess that perfection maybe it's just because it's an alliteration it's just like Really like, yeah, it motivates me. But he's pressing on to possess that perfection. I just wanted to say it one more time. He's saying, my, my aim is to accomplish the complete work, the complete work that Jesus intended for me to accomplish. For Paul, that looked like in Romans 8, or rather, Romans 6, 4, becoming a new man. Paul just, Paul just didn't accept that, oh, Jesus wants me to become a new man. He took strides at seeing that accomplished in his life. Conforming to Christ's image in Romans eight twenty nine. He didn't just say, well, Jesus wants me to be like him. I guess I'll just relax, see what happens. But he, he took strides into seeing that happen in his life. How many times we know that that. God desires for us to be like him, that, that we need to conform to Christ's image. But what steps are we taking in our life to conform to Christ's image? What decisions are we making to line with the word of God? Acts 9, God calls him, sets him apart to be a witness and to be used in helping people come to know Christ. He didn't just stand there and be like, it's great. I'm going to go to Damascus now. His life changed. Everything about his life changed. His mission, his purpose, everything about his life changed at that moment. And from that moment on, he did everything he could. He surrounded himself with people. It learned to grow, to get to know Jesus more. Barnabas brings him to the apostles. He gets connected with them. He starts a ministry with Barnabas. He starts putting his feet to work. He starts going and doing something. God gave him a purpose, and he did everything within his power to see that purpose fulfilled, to see what God promised him fulfilled in his life. It's more than just saying, you know, God got a hold of me. Jesus saved me. Because if our salvation is strictly about our butts being saved, then you've gotta, we've got to change our mentality about what salvation really is. 
Salvation, yes, saves us, but you know, our salvation, the primary purpose of it is to be used by God so that other people experience salvation. That's the main reason for salvation. It's not just, you know, like I said, it's not just us getting out of hell. It's about us getting people out of hell. You know, being used by God to, to bring people into relationship with Him. That moment we repent is the beginning. And I love, what was it? I, th- I think it was earlier in Philippians, right? God began a good work. Right? Paul says that. He that began a good work in you will complete that work. Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Once, once you experience Christ's salvation, once you come to know him, that's the beginning. Because he's got a good work that he's going to continue to work in you. Until you reach the end. Till the day of Jesus Christ. So whether it's your family, whether it's coworkers, it's friends, people that God's placed in your life, there's work to be done. There's a message of the gospel that needs to be shared. Knowing Christ brings stability. Experiencing His power enables us to build. Suffering with Him leads to sharing in His glory. Having purpose keeps us focused on that end goal. And that kind of leads to the last point here. And If I could maybe just have the worship team come up. The last point is we must forget the past. We must forget the past. And I want to just read this. It says, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. There's no greater opposition against your future than your past. I'll say that again. There's no greater opposition to your future than your past. I look at Paul and who Paul was. I look at what he went through. Paul had a past. I mean, we're talking about a a guy who was imprisoning people for their faith in Jesus Christ, right? We're talking about the persecutor, the persecutor Paul, the guy who was, who was working against Jesus. He wasn't just somebody who was apathetic or complacent or just kind of in the middle, but he was literally dead set against Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets a hold of him, and now there's a powerful work taking place in his heart. Jesus did a work in him, and and this is really what I want to speak to, is we all have a past. We all have a past. The greatest opponent to your future is your past. And I believe there's, there's people in this room that your past is keeping you from looking to what lies ahead. Your past is, is, is keeping you trapped. It's almost, 
It's almost veiling your eyes. And you're not able to see what lies ahead, really because your eyes are just turned in the opposite direction. Your eyes are looking back here at what happened in the past. Because, like I said, Paul, he had a past. And I'm sure he could have he went to God and said, God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that, I, that, I've, that I've done against you. You can't forgive what I've done. Who I am. Paul had a past, but praise God. Jesus Christ gave him a future. And he wouldn't be remembered anymore as Paul the, the persecutor, but he'd become known as Paul the apostle. Paul the Apostle, the man who, who was the church planner, the man who, who began to write letters to these churches, to encourage these churches, to write these letters that have now been preserved for, for thousands of years, that speak into our lives. He had a past. Just like everybody that God uses has a past. But he had a future waiting for Paul. And Paul could have been stuck. He could have been stuck in his past and let who he was, the opponent he was against Christ, the things that he did against Christ, keep him from being who Christ desired him to be. So the question is, what's our past? What is it? What have we experienced that's keeping us from truly moving forward and looking forward to what lies ahead in our life. I spoke on vision right before the end of the year. And I want to read a quote that I shared with you that Tuesday night. It was from P.K. Bernard. It said, a man without vision is a man without a future. And a man without a future will always return to his past. A man without vision is a man without a future. And a man without a future will always return to his past. Why don't we just bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment here and just really seek the Lord. Father, we just, we come before you right now and we seek your face. God, we, we, we just want to come before you tonight recognizing, Lord, that you began a good work in us. That you began a good work in us, God. That there was a moment that we came to you and we, we fell to our knees. We cried out to you. We called out your name, Jesus. We repented of our sin. There was a moment where we experienced you. And God, we just come before you tonight and we ask you, Lord, give us a vision. Give us a vision for our lives. Lord, help us not to just get so caught up with life as it is, to not see it how life you designed it to be. God, we don't want to be caught up in just what's going on from day to day, Lord, but we want to know your purpose. Father, we want to know your plan for us, oh God. Lord, what's the blueprint of our lives? What does it look like? What is the end goal? What does our house look like when we come before you and we stand before you, Jesus? When we look before your face, 
when the house is finished. Lord, give us a vision. Give us a vision for what that looks like in our lives. God, I pray that it would be huge. Lord, that we would see our lives grander and bigger than what we could even imagine them to be, Lord, because our vision would be placed in your hands, in your power, O oh God. And Father, I pray right now for the people that do not have that vision for their life. Their vision is so caught up in the past that they have no future. And, and if tonight that would be you and you would say, I, I've been so caught up in my past that I, that I haven't been able to see what my future is. Because Paul says, I forget the past. I focus on this one thing. I forget the past. And I look forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race. And receive the heavenly prize. And maybe you haven't seen the end of the race. You haven't been filled with, with that vision and that passion to drive you in your walk with God. To see the end goal. The reward that, that lies ahead of us when we stand before God. And you've allowed that end goal to be skewed by, by just things that have taken place in your life. You're not able to even see what God can physically do with you here and now to bring glory to his name because of what's happened in the past. And if that's you, could I just see your hand raised right now? I've been stuck in my past and I can't see my future. I've been stuck in my fat past and I can't see what lies ahead for me. See those hands. See those hands. God desires to know you. God desires to be known. He desires for you to experience His power. He desires for you to share in His glory as you suffer for Him. He desires for you to have purpose. And He seeks that you would forget your past. The past is like a it's like a shackle on your hands binding you to the wall of, of, a, of a prison cell. The doors open in that prison cell. But you're so attached to the past you can't get out of that prison cell. And when Christ comes in to our lives he walks into that prison cell and that moment that we repent before him he breaks the chains of our past and there are and I really feel this is from the Lord there are people here for those who raised your hands for too long the chains of your past 
they've been loosened. But you've been remaining against the wall of that open prison cell. Standing there free, but not walking in freedom. The bondage of the past was broken, was released from your life, but you've not let the work of Christ be revealed in your life. He that began a good work in you, the work that he started was a good work. It was a good work to bring goodness to you, peace, joy, fruit of the Spirit in your life. To break the memories in, in the chain of the past, the bondage of the past, to be broken and to allow you to walk in freedom. So this day, this day for those who have been already freed, that moment that you experienced salvation, God broke the chains. He freed you from that past. Now today is the day that you make the declaration before God that you're going to take a step forward. That it's no longer just waiting where I used to be. Pretending as if those chains were still there. But it's actually walking in that victory that Jesus already provided for me when he saved me. Your promise is peace. Your promise is peace in the name of Jesus. So therefore, if, yours, if your God is the Prince of Peace, then right now, in the name of Jesus, we rebuke anxiety. We rebuke depression. Father, we rebuke anything that will come against the peace of Jesus Christ. Because where the Prince of Peace is, only peace can reign. I speak joy over each and every person in this room. I speak joy over those who've been bound by their past, who think that they can't have another day of joy in their life because of what's happened. Father, I declare it right now in Jesus' name. Joy, joy, Father, over each person in this room because you've already sealed that good work within us, O oh God. You've sealed the good work of joy at the moment that we accepted you into our lives. The moment of repentance, that joy was made available to us, God. Help us walk in that joy, in that reliance of what you've done on the cross. We rebuke every attack of the enemy. Every lie. Because it's the enemy who deceives us into thinking that the chains are actually still there. It's the enemy that deceives us into thinking that we're not actually free. That we still have chains wrapped around us. It's the enemy who deceives us into thinking that we are something we are not. To succeed in what lies ahead... We need to begin walking and knowing who we are. God, I just pray that right now over each person in this room, identity. Father, that they would know who they are in you. 
that they would not seek the approval of men, that they would not run to, to what man would say about them or, or, or revel in and, and just take joy in what man's opinion is, but God, that their joy would be founded in how you view them. Their identity would be founded in you, Jesus. We hope that you are encouraged and blessed by today's message. If you would like to know more about 242, you can email Pastor Justin at jcorkum at manchesterassembly.org. You can also tweet us at 242NH. Again, that's T-W-O-42-N-H. Or on Facebook, you can look us up under 242 Young Adults. We look forward to your feedback, and we'll see you next time.